Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. the developing. I'm Mary Fridley, a member of the faculty at the Eastside Institute, where Susan Massad and I created and lead the Joy of Dementia, You Gotta Be Kidding workshop series. I trained in the Institute's social therapeutic approach, served as a social therapist for over a decade, and have spent the last 40 years building the development community of which the Institute is a part. I also have the honor of serving as coordinator of Reimagining Dementia, a creative coalition for justice, which has brought together over 700 people living with dementia, care partners, family members, advocates, artists, activists, and anyone who wants to creatively transform a culture in which dementia is related to a stigma, fear, and often cruel dehumanization. I am so honored to be here today with a true creative pioneer in the field of dementia and much else. Um, His name is John Killick. John lives in England. He was a teacher for 30 years and a writer in his spare time before taking up writing full-time in 1989. He has worked as a writer in residence in a prison, a hospice, a private healthcare company serving people with dementia living in nursing homes, He was also writer in residence at the Dementia Services Development Center, University of Sterling. Between 1999 and 2004, he conducted work there exploring communication with people with dementia through a wide variety of arts activities. John is the author of several books, including Poetry and Dementia, Playfulness and Dementia, Dementia Positive, and Creativity and Communication in Persons, living with, sorry, creative, sorry again, and creativity and communication in persons with dementia. His latest book, Near Nature, will be published in August, so look for it wherever books are sold. Hello, John. Hello, Mary. So, John, I just want to say and and say to everyone here, I am so, it's just so wonderful to to have you here as a guest. Um, I we are not old friends, um, but I have already come to really admire you. And I and just really for the humanity, the compassion, the curiosity, and of course, you know, your absolute commitment to creativity and all that you bring to the dementia conversation and really to the world. Because I think it's always important to remind ourselves that dementia is in the world and it's something we all help to shape and have a relationship to. Um, I'm very excited to be introducing you and your work to the Institute's community around the world, um, because I think that what you're discovering and what you have to say is important for anyone who wants to and believes that we can and must create a far better world. So let's begin. Um, Okay. I debated, actually, I went back and forth on what to start with, but I decided I wanted to ask you about an article you recently sent me um, that I believe is going to be published soon in the Journal of Dementia Care there in UK. Um, By the time this comes out, I'm guessing it will have been published. 
But the article is titled, Has Dementia a Future? Which I love. And in it, you challenge the understanding that really has shaped the dementia discourse for far too long. It's something we've come to call the tragedy narrative. Um, And you propose a way forward. You write, we could start by abolishing the word dementia, which could call into question the whole business of diagnosis and its attendant horrors. By clinging to the current possibly erroneous mindset, we could at least impart we could at least in part creating the very problem which we go about very inadequately trying to treat. So I would love for you to say a little bit more about that. I mean, as you may know, the Institute spent the last 40 years creating a non-diagnostic approach to psychology and really to living since what I call the tyranny of diagnosis is embedded in our society. But I'd really, really love to hear more about what you have to say about, if you will, the attendant horrors of diagnosis and how we have, all of us, I think, created the problem. Well, we are all victims of the medicalization of dementia. We are all victims of the view of dementia that it is a disease, fundamentally and foremostly, and not that it is partly uh, medical and partly psychosocial. And because everybody's concentrated for so long on the medical, the psychosocial has been neglected, both in terms of the ideas and in terms of funding. And so the medical has predominated and has created the fear which uh, follows from it. Because if you just look at the medical, it's terrifying. But of course, it isn't just medical. And uh, my work has not been medical at all and has Uh, if you might say, ignored the medical, because we need to concentrate more on the other side. So I've looked at the person first, and in meeting people and listening to them and writing down their words, I have discovered that indeed people are not blanks when they get dementia, after they get dementia. They are in fact still fully human beings with ability to communicate with us, and maybe in new ways, different ways, And I've tried to present this thesis in a variety of ways through using different art forms, but fundamentally poetry, because I found that people with dementia often spoke in a poetic manner. So that's where I am, and that's where I intend to stay. (laughs) And I would like like to say that um, despite the um, uh, the the, um, uh, Alzheimer's societies talking about um, uh, personhood as something that is uh, irrelevant or sidelined, that in fact um, we are all of us a brain. We all of us have a brain aging within us, and so with, when you say, "Oh, we're fighting against dementia," that's useless. We really have to c- collaborate with dementia in order to make progress. So um, I fully reject uh, most Alzheimer's society's uh, emphasis upon disease and fighting against the disease in favor of reimagining dementia, as our organization says, in terms of something more creative and inspiring. 
That's so helpful. And, and I'm kind of being mindful of our audience here, which I'm guessing has a wide array of relationships to dementia. Sure. Some people listening may not know anything about it. Others, as is often the case, as you know, most people you meet have known or have someone in their lives who have been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was hoping you could say a little bit more about why the medical approach to this is so damaging. Because again, in many cultures, it's, it's just what there is. And of course, that's what people go to and are dependent on. And I was struck by you engaging and kind of challenging the notion of fighting it. But it reminds me of in so many diseases and in that whole model, kind of the, and, and people living with cancer have brought this up, that it's, it's kind of a war mentality which is always, you know, we're going to fight yes. it, we're going to beat it, we're going to survive it, we're going to do that. And it's always seemed to me deeply problematic, but I would love to hear a little bit more from you about why you believe that to be true. Well, I think it's a very time-wasting approach. And it is, of course, what leads to um, people being diagnosed. I mean, if, if as I believe, uh, dementia is brain aging and applies to all of us in some degree, then we don't need to be diagnosed. We've all got it and we can all live with it. And we all have it in different degrees. Some people get it when they're quite young, but most people get it when they're elderly. And it's interesting that the Alzheimer's societies all say that, uh, of course, dementia is not a condition of age. It's rubbish. Of course it is. Why, are so, why as people get older and older, uh, does, do more of the population get dementia? It's because it's part of, part of the new pattern. Now, it may not have been a pattern in the past, but then people didn't live so long. Right. And as we now live longer, we have more conditions as we get older, and dementia is just one of them. We we name it as dementia. We try and diagnose it as dementia. But let's get rid of that whole approach. And let's say we all, for example, experience memory loss. Now, I don't believe I have dementia. I'm just about to be 86. And I experience memory loss. I can't remember people's names. Sometimes I can't remember their faces. I can't remember places sometimes. Uh, I used to be able to Um, call up these things, but I can't. Partly it's because one's head is so full of things after one has lived so long (laughs) that some (laughs) things get crowded out. Um, So as one uh, person said to me, um, getting old and having dementia is is becoming a better forgetter. And that's a lovely, positive way. I love that. I love that. A lovely, positive way of saying, okay, I'm becoming a better forgetter. So what? Good. There's quite a lot of things in my life that I'm very happy to forget. Really? Yes. And probably is the case for other people. Exactly. I love it. So, you know, the other thing, and I really wish you'd had an opportunity to meet my partner, Susan Massad, who passed away in November. Um, She was a a physician for 50 years. So, and she would have, she would have agreed completely with you. And one of the things that she would always raise, and I think is true, and I believe you would agree, is the other thing that's insidious about this biomedical model is it relates, it's just so individuated. 
that it's the individual who has the disease or the condition and it's located inside them, which in our minds pretty much like just so contributes to the, to the isolation and that sense sure. that there's nothing to be done, that literally that person is just, it's isolated alone. And that contributes to that, which is why just to segue into the next kind of question, why I am so in love with creativity, with the arts, with poetry, with movement, with play, performance, all of that, because I think they contribute to people coming together and creating something together and creating community and connection. So I, you mentioned that you obviously have, have, have used a variety of art forms, but I, I, this is my language. I, I get the sense that your first love is poetry. Sure. And I believe in, a, in an earlier conversation, you had said that it, that went back to you being a boy, five years old, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So I would love to hear, take us back to this five-year-old boy, and then you can move up 81 years. But how, like, why poetry? What's that journey been like? What, what brought you to it? And what is the power of poetry for you? Well, I was an only child. And... Um, I had to come to terms with life without interaction with siblings. And I don't know the experience of other people, but for me, that meant coming to terms with my condition and trying to address my life in a positive way through some medium. And it just so happened that writing became that medium. I don't know how it started, and I have no examples of me as a five-year-old poet, thank goodness, but I do have examples of my poetry from about the age of 10 or 12 up to the present. Um, so having that sort of bias towards that art form, uh, clearly one is interested in words, one is interested in language, one is interested in hearing what other people say and writing it down. And I did a lot of this before I ever met anybody with dementia. And I suddenly discovered that when I met someone with dementia, uh, it came into its own somehow. And I'd like to give you an example, if I may. Please, please. Right. Um, in fact, I'll give you three examples during this talk, if I may, illustrating different things. And the first of these, I think, illustrates the interiority of many people with dementia. In other words, they're thinking and feeling things, even though you're not aware of that, uh, all the time. So when you sit with somebody for a long time and you have a bit of a conversation with them and then you shut up, they start talking their own way of what's interesting them. And this is a poem which was made by a lady. I just wrote her words down, and it's called From My Hiding Place. And it's about the inside of the person. There have been other loves, but none like that of my mother. She had birds that came onto her hand, pecked and flew away. What a wonderful time. We were brought up that way. She was very particular how and where. I shall not forget. She would make little noises and then pull it in, the string of human kindness. The wind started to come, and I didn't know whether to come in here or to go out there. My mother stood at one door. Nasty blows came over the water. 
We had to prepare very quickly. It all came rushing down from the top. I liked the rush and the bush. My father was a man that spent his life with all that was spread. He was a beautiful man. I looked up to him. He would walk a mile to rescue one little chick he thought was on bad legs. The farm was a rather nice grey. Everything that walked and moved and would follow me, I loved. Twice and twice over, what I think is important. My hiding place now is one that I can stretch out to and run away to for a while. Well, that's so beautiful. That's now, if you look at that, that last verse, my hiding place now is one that I can stretch out to and run away to for a while. This is the inside of her mind and imagination. And this is, a, the poem is largely about memory, which is very vivid and keen to her. Mm -hmm. And she's saying that she, her interior life is made up of these things and uh, she, she maintains her personhood, although she wouldn't put it in those terms, by living in that cocoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I love? I, I agree with you completely that I've always thought that, that, that poetry is the language of dementia rather than nonfiction, which yeah. is so hideously truth-bound. But I was struck in this poem and what, I mean, I, 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 I can't claim to have always loved poetry. I, no, no. I, I don't want to misrepresent myself. However, as I've come to know it and listening to that, I was struck by, it's an invitation to, to the listeners to go wherever we want to go with the words. Yes. As opposed to nonfiction or truth-based narratives, which kind of insists that this is the world and you can enter it if you want. But it's not inviting. It's not inclusive. It's not allowing. It's not inviting you to co-create, if you will. No, and no, I don't know no. if you have that experience, but I was really yes, surprised I, 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 didn't, I didn't suggest any of the ideas that are in that poem to her. They came completely yeah. spontaneously from her and in the order in which they came. And I just wrote them down. The only editing I do sometimes is to leave something out, but mm -hmm. I didn't in that occasion. And um, I, I certainly would never add a single word. They are, so in that sense, though it is a sort of collaboration between the person and myself, it is entirely their words and their interior thoughts and feelings. Yeah, I'd like wonderful. to give you another example. Sure. Example now, in that, one, in that one, the lady is talking about what's going on inside herself. In this one, the man is reflecting what's going on inside himself and what's going on outside himself. So you've got the two perspectives. And you will see um, the shape of the poem, the structure of it, is given by these two poles. It's called Up and Away. Sometimes you can see where the smoke blows right across from the factories. Beautiful trees, apple blossom. It's a favourite place of mine. Wouldn't it be of yours? Well... I'll have to be off now, temporary circumstances. 
When it's stormy there, we used to nip over. All the apples got blown off. That's where most of them lie, over the terrace and over the garden. Well, I'll be on my road, or they'll be getting the guns out. Sometimes I think about running away, right up through the meadow to the cliff. It's reasonably steep. Always keep myself in trim. There's no change in this place. Well, I'm still on a tether, so I'll have to be getting back. You see, oh, yes. the interior and the exterior and no, the I pressures think, of that upon him. I, I agree. I think it kind of it, it breaks down that dichotomy that we so insist on holding on to between inside outside. Uh, the, it's That's just right. it's just full of life. Before we go on, um, we need to just take a, a brief pause here for a word from our sponsor. Sure. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. Hi, welcome back to our conversation with John Killick, uh, poet uh, extraordinaire, and I'm Mary Fridley. So, John, I, I mean, I'm so I love the poetry, and I could hear it. I mean, we could take up the entire hour doing that. But I want to just move the lens back a little bit from poetry to include, if you will, the broader arts creativity um, and also play and performance. Um, which is, I think I've mentioned in earlier conversations, has been very important to the Institute. Um, and we believe it's key to how we as human beings of all ages continue to grow and develop throughout life. Um, we also believe, as I believe you do, it has to be stifled. I mean, it, it, st- it doesn't have to be stifled. It stifles us as adults that we are unable to play in so many ways. So, and I know that having read a few interviews with you and then talking to you that when you first kind of were introduced to the possibility of play and playfulness and working with people living with dementia, you were skeptical. So, and I, and, and I don't think that you're alone. I think that continues. Um, I think that arts and creativity are kind of viewed as the stepchild of approaches when it comes to working with dementia. So I'm hoping you could say, you know, something about the, the both the skepticism and then the process and journey that brought you to many things, including writing a book called Play and Dementia. I certainly was skeptical, Mary. I read an article in the, in the British Journal of Dementia Care by an occupational therapist in which she advocated play. And her argument was 
that people with dementia responded to this approach and therefore we should include it in the way we presented ourselves and the material that we presented. And I wrote a reply, which was also published in the journal, saying that um, this was trivializing dementia. It was uh, treating people with dementia as if they were children. And children, of course, enjoyed play. And if people with dementia enjoyed play, that was no reason for presenting it to them as a mode of operation. Uh, because we were encouraging them to be regarded as, as children. And she wrote back, and so it, so it went on. And I didn't shift my position for a couple of years. And then I decided, I got a grant to do uh, uh, improvised drama with people with dementia uh, across Scotland, in six different cities. And it was a very exciting project. And I thought I was going to, um, to use most of the techniques that I had learned because I had done some drama training um, in, uh, in normal training of actors. But as, as soon as I started, I realized that humor was the, was the door that opened people to improvisation. Mm. And humor uh, of, a, of a basic kind, it appealed to me as well. So um, I think you've already alluded to the fact that in our society, we really don't appreciate uh, playfulness uh, after, after childhood. And they sometimes refer to old age as a second childhood, or certainly dementia as a second childhood. And it isn't. It is a recapturing of the spontaneity that existed before, which intellectual capacity and many of the uh, norms of society hold back. So with dementia, that's removed to a large extent and suddenly people are free to be humorous and playful and to improvise in extraordinary ways. And I saw the way it brought out the personalities of members of the group and how by the end of each residency, because there were a series of residences, people were queuing up saying, aren't you coming back? Can't we do more of this? Um, this is what makes us feel alive. <laughs> And so I went on eventually to write the book and I didn't, I got people with dementia to write in the book as well. And other people who had tried out improvisation and playfulness. Uh, for example, in Scotland, there's an organization called Elderflowers, which go into dementia units and use play, they're trained actors and use playfulness with the people there waiting to be diagnosed or already diagnosed, but with nowhere for them to be transferred to. And I, I wrote this up and saw this as an incredible scheme, still going on, I believe. That's many years ago. And all this fed the idea that, that I had been totally wrong. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote the book, I wrote a preface confessing my ignorance.
mm. saying that I had been completely converted to the viewpoint that play was important purely by experience, not by having uh, argued the case. I now argued the case because of what I had found. Mm. You know, I just wanted this is just purely for me. I, I love yeah. what you're saying. And you quoted something from John Keats in the piece I, or the article I mentioned yes. earlier that I just love. It's, and I'm, I think it's, it, I, I may be paraphrasing him, but it's basically play is when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Can I just yeah. say, I love that quote. And I love this, that it says something about our, our capacity to handle uncertainty and mystery, which is the world is so full of now. And I just wonder what drew you to that. Well, it's the terrible dogmatism of the medical approach. They're saying, this is a disease, you've got it. Uh, we've found ways of diagnosing you, though in my opinion, the, the ways are very defective. <laughs> And they don't really tell us. Some people are diagnosed who haven't got it and others who have it are not diagnosed. Uh, if you believe that dementia is a thing that you can actually classify, um, it, it sweeps aside all that sort of thing. It says, we don't know what causes dementia. I mean, they started out, didn't they, by saying there, is, there will be a cure. Now they're saying... Well, there are multiple causes. So if there are multiple causes, there must be multiple cures if you're going, right. along, if you're going along that, uh, right. that stupid road, right? Uh, these people have got to defend their positions by more and more ludicrous um, ideas. Uh, Keats also said, Oh, for a lifetime of sensations rather than thoughts. <laughs> here, here. Now, that simplifies it. Uh, first of all, I'm saying we don't want to be dogmatic. We want to experiment and find out all the different ways in which we can help people, um, not go down narrow channels. But he's also saying there, but people with dementia, well, he's not talking about people with dementia, but if we apply it to people with dementia, People with dementia are more living a life of sensations than of thoughts, because as we understand it, um, dementia does in fact attack and uh, affect intellectual capacity. So people can't reason so easily. They can't remember things so easily. No worry about that. What it releases is the ability to feel more and to be more or in, deeply emotional in, in terms of themselves. As one lady said to me, I bet you've never been so near nature before. Mm, that's, so uh, that's her, he, she's saying, you're in, with me, you've got the real deal. Um, with me, it's human nature. And you know, you recognize it. Yeah. Um, and so a life of sensations means, of course, that it opens people up to more artistic possibilities. Indeed, Julian Hughes has talked about the aesthetic approach to dementia. In other words, the people's ability to perceive beauty, people's ability to create beauty, 
we need to give people lots of opportunities to experience beauty. When people go to galleries, they fall over with wonder sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, not ordinary people don't. They just go around as an, an almost a social chore <laughs> or an, a, a, an artistic chore. That people with dementia uh, and, and with music, listen, what people with dementia, when they respond to music, it's the same with words. And so it seems to me that Keats was on to something. Yeah. You know, I, I just realized, I'm, I, I know I said I admired you before. Um, and I do. But it just occurred to me there's another reason I admire you and just like you is I think your willingness to grow as a result of all this. So, I mean, in a way, the the story about your relationship to play kind of embodies that because and I was struck and I, I and I, I feel very close to it because one of the saddest things I think about the whole dementia experience is how hard it is for those of us who don't have dementia, and particularly those in close proximity, to not allow ourselves to be moved and to grow as as part of that. Like, I think dementia offers everyone a chance to be more playful, not to live in the moment, which everyone says we would love to do, and to be able to do that more in life. And I always think, why is that considered a burden? Like, you can go with that. And really kind of it, 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 it enhances and adds to your life. And I was just wondering kind of what a little bit more about your experience in going through this and how much like how have you experienced your growth and kind of and through all this? Oh, I've changed. I've changed profoundly. Um, it was a second career for me because I was a teacher in other places before. And of course, I've not been a teacher with people with dementia. I've been a sharer in their condition. Mm-hmm. And that experience has made me a much deeper person. It has affected my relationships. It has affected my interests. It's affected my writing. I've become a more grounded person because people with dementia have helped me to see what is involved in being like that. That's lovely. I don't Um, know how long we've got, but I want to read one more poem. um, Yes. Can I read it at the end? I have a couple more. I have a couple other questions, but please. um, And then we'll we'll close that out, but please. You haven't asked me, and I wasn't expecting you to answer me. Do ask me, do the people with dementia who uh, I write the poems with, do they ever write about dementia? Uh Uh-huh. Hmm. And the answer is yes, and I want to give you an, uh, uh, an example, because neither of the two that I've read you uh, were consciously speaking about dementia in any sense. And this was a Scotsman whom I worked with for a while, who was absolutely brilliant, who uh, didn't like poetry, but in the end said to me, John, I'm a bloody poet. <laughs> and he, I asked him what he thought of poetry, and he said, Essences, essence of essences. What I you said, what I like is the meanness of it, meanness mm-hmm. of it. And this was one of his poems, reflecting on his childhood and bringing it up to his present condition. Bobby was bigger than me, and when I got it, I got a right good thwack from this bloke. He just ladled into me, and I couldn't stotter. I was lying in the playground, Biff, out. 
Bobby was going to get a doing, and I administered it. If you steam into me, stars. I cloaked myself in myself, and that was good for me. I got that from him, too. I had my dose, and Bobby had his dose. Big owls, that's an Alzheimer's, big owls bigger than me, too. But I'm not going to lie down under his blows. He's in there. I can still cloak myself in myself. Brother, brother. Amazing, um, isn't it, really? I mean, it is. And I've often thought, um, and again, this is why I'm just such an advocate for um, the arts and creativity and play and all of that, because it also challenges, if you will, identity. Because mm. I've often said, if you heard those words and somebody who living with dementia was just sitting around mumbling those words, yes, they would be related to, they would be ignored, they would be dismissed, they would be kind of, take, pity would be taken upon them because they don't, quote, make sense. In a poem, now I happen to believe a lot of what they're saying is poetic, but when presented as a poem, you're just in awe. And you again, you're just transported. And the person, as he said, he's a bloody poet, which yes, immediately yes. transforms how we see him. Yes. You know I mean? I'm a man who wasn't a poet, and now I realize I'm a poet. Right. And that is true of so many of us, surely. Already his place in the world has expanded that mm -hmm. you can't kind of keep labeling and, and diminishing him in the same ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I love that we're, you know, working together to, to kind of bring out that writ large. So to, to close out and, you know, we could obviously speak for hours and hours, but one, a, a quick thing. Can you just say a little bit about what your newest book near nature is about? Yes. Well, it includes those three poems. Ah. It is in fact a an anthology of 50 of the poems created with people with dementia over the years, 50 of the best, I feel, uh, with uh, great variety, men and women, old and young, um, but all, I feel, with quality of language, thought and feeling. And they are at present being illustrated by an artist, so it will become um, an attractive-looking book oh, uh, with, with pictures and the poems, a sort of gift book that can go to people to change attitudes and minds. That's wonderful. Well, I am definitely going to buy your first copy as soon as it's out in August. <laughs> Thank um, you, Mary. But actually, it makes me think, just a quick thing. Yes. Maybe I'll just ask you both things at once and then you can finish out. Um, it's just occurred to me, communication, and I know one of your books was written about it, and it's kind of a through line in your work. And it just occurred to me, a common misperception, and in some ways we've been addressing this, but a common misperception amongst people who don't, you know, just live their lives and kind of have the ordinary relationship with dementia, believe that people with dementia can't, quote, communicate, that the, what they're saying doesn't have meaning. Hmm. Um, so I was hoping maybe you could say a little bit more about how you see or understand the relationship between creativity, communication, or creative in communication, 
especially in with people of four and with people living with dementia? Well, one of the problems is that I think carers, relatives, uh, particularly relatives of people with dementia, seeing some of the changes that occur in the person as they get older, which is labeled dementia, and these changes uh, occur in language as well as in behavior, um, are alienated by this, and they say, this isn't the person I knew. My answer to that is, this is a new person. This is somebody breaking through a barrier within themselves, which dementia has helped them to do. And some of the new characteristics, which they've not seen before, are valuable and worth encouraging. And this is true of language. So instead of saying that person speaks nonsense or I can't understand them or it's not worth trying to communicate with that person, they need to persevere and they need to understand that change is occurring before their eyes and in their ears and they need to be up to the challenge. Now, people coming from outside like myself um, it's easier for, for me and for us, other writers who are doing this, um, to respond to the change because A, we didn't know how the person was before and B, we are writers or potential writers and therefore we're open to some of these characteristics which suddenly emerge. So um, I think it needs a lot of perseverance by carers and family, and it needs a lot of insight um, and, uh, and patience by the, by the writers or the communicators. I mean, I've often been asked by carers in nursing homes, if, if I want to communicate with a person, John, what's the first thing I need to do? And I say, learn to shut up. Because people will fill silences with their own chatter. And that immediately turns the person with dementia off. They think this person is not interested in hearing what I have to say. Hmm. So lovely. And it also occurs to me, I mean, I think in that mix, which I so agree with, I think we can add, it would help enormously if people were... Um, learned how to be more improvisational yes creative in how it is there and kind of because that opens up and i know you agree it also helps us understand that even we as human beings who are quote cognitively intact we communicate and connect in so many more ways than our words yes day-to-day -day life yes. and yet that's so stifled and Absolutely. so removed that Again, it allows us to kind of get back in touch with that. Oh, we have all of that. That's all of that. There's a million ways to communicate and to create and connect. Um, why does there just need to be one and it has to be whatever is coming out of our mouth? Well, I think what Keats said uh, applies to anybody trying to communicate with somebody with dementia. He said, 
you must be in uncertainties, mysteries, and doubts. And if you're not in that frame of mind, you won't be able to gather what's coming to you. Agree. Well, it seems only fitting. Uh, if you have one more poem, I mean, I'm assuming you do because you've written many and um, I would love, I think it seems only fitting that maybe we close this out with a poem. Well, you could have one that's not about dementia or by someone. Uh, write a poem, any poem. I really like voices. I've always enjoyed writing in different voices. And this is an extreme example. You've probably heard, you might even have visited a famous place in Northern Ireland called the Giant's Causeway. It's a remarkable basalt uh, rock formation that goes right across to Scotland and Fingal's Cave. And people walk on it and wonder at it. So I've written this poem, which has nothing to do with dementia at all, uh, in the voice of the giant. Okay? <laughs> this is my stamping ground. I've hammered the stanchions in with my heels till they could go no further. And they can't be separated one from another. They've weathered the waves and the weathers. The humans with their yammering are of no consequence. I've greased the lower slopes, so with luck we we'll lose a few each year. I don't throw my weight around now. I'm into the yawning stage. When you've seen as many aeons as I have, I've also become more permissive. I admit my causeway provides a most specious place for survival, but I let the occasional seal slip in off my draggling blacks, and here's a heron will stand, study, bend and stab in my rock pools. It's a hard life, I admit, being part of a great tectonic movement. But I'm sticking around, sure of my place in tomorrow's geomorphology. After all, I have the one quality that counts, sheer basalt endurance. I love it. Humor, humor, <laughs> very important part of her. It is. Well, yeah. thank you. And I, I, I thank you for sticking around and for giving so much to so <laughs> many people endurance. in the world. And I'm, I'm thrilled that, again, so many more people are going to get to know you and your work. Thank, thank you, you so much, much, John. It's been thank a delight. Bye-bye, everybody. All Power to the Developing has been brought to you in part by the Baylor Wolf Fund.